Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey, kids. You are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, January 22nd, 2019. We have a lot of show for you today, and to get you in the mood, we invite you to grab someone cute and get dancing. Shake that money maker. We're back. 
with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Doesn't that song sound vaguely reminiscent of every single game show you watched when you were a kid? No matter if you grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s? <laughs> That's the genius of this band. That song was Twiggy Twiggy vs. James Bond from Japanese pop band The Pizzicato Five from This Year's Girl, which came out in 1991. Pizzicato 5 actually began at the very end of the 70s, at the beginning of the punk era, but in Japan, and um, they lasted until, with many changes of personnel, until I think the early 2000s, and they were known in the United States for their homage to late 1960s English language pop music, hence Twiggy Twiggy and James Bond. Well, what does this song have to do to get us in the mood for this episode? Well, take a listen to this song, which our guest artist this week handpicked to open this episode.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Mexican girl pop group Flans with the song called Bizarre from their Flans album in 1985. Flans was, yes, a 80s Mexican girl group consisting of three girls, Ilsa, Yvonne, and Mimi. They were from the mid-80s to the mid-90s, and this song, Bizarre, was the cutest video. These three girls go to this big flea market, and they meet boys, and they eat, and they dance, and they have fun. Hmm, kind of like the Mexican version of TLC, right? Well, kind of, sort of, but TLC, I think, was a little bit darker with their subject matter in their songs. But then again, they were from the 90s. Now you may be asking... What does international pop music have to do with our guest artist this week? Well, our guest artist this week is a connoisseur and a critic of all things pop in a comedic way. Hmm, who could this person be? Well, wait no longer, because now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week! Woohoo! And I am sitting here with an artist whom I've admired for years. No, seriously, years. When I was first starting out, getting my feet wet as a performer, trying to figure out what direction I was going to go through, I saw this man perform in a little basement of the Time Cafe on Lafayette Street, which was an underground performance space called Fez, which was kind of like the precursor to Joe's Pub, only in a much more underground way, because it was the 90s, but we'll get back to that later. What a long introduction. Please welcome, I'm so excited, Mike Albo. Hi, hello, hello. Oh my God, I might have to keep all of that introduction in. <laughs> it's so nice, I love hearing it. It's well, it's the truth. Happy. It's the total truth. It's so nice. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua, oh, Mike Albo. to be here. So, this yes. is a question that I ask everyone when uh-huh. we begin our chat together. How and where did we meet? Okay. I remember, you're very memorable, but I don't remember where we were when we met. But you, I mean, you, we can cheat because you said it's through Bonnie Joy. Yes, we have a mutual friend named Bonnie Joy who is a great poet. Great poet. And I met her in the late 90s uh-huh. when I found Surf Reality, which was a performance yes. based on the Lower East Side mm-hmm. where the freaks were. So I decided that this is where I fit in. Yep. And I was trying to figure out my way. And I remember seeing you. I think it was an early version of Unitard or something. Uh-huh. And I was just like, I wanted to be, I swear, I swear my red hair. I, like, so I, I, th- cool. I thought you were the bomb. Oh, that's so nice. I, I think also we did a couple storytelling nights together. Yes. We did, we did this one out in Bay Ridge. I remember going way out to Bay mm-hmm. Ridge before I even knew what those two words meant together as a town. And I, yeah. th- I think I remember doing a storytelling night with you and, and this woman, Cynthia... Cindy Freeman? Yeah, Cindy Freeman. Oh my God! Yes, yes, yes. Um, and I, it wasn't. It was. It was in um, Sunset Park. Sunset Park. Yes, yes. Uh, yes. Oh my God! Coraline Cafe. Wow, yes. we're totally dating ourselves yeah. here. Do you oh, remember that night? I, re- I totally yeah, remember that. I remember night. you very well. Yeah. I remember yeah. you being there yeah. and, and hearing your but story. But by that time, I think both of us. Well, both of us have become published authors since the night I saw you at Fed. Yeah, yeah. And I also remember there was another night we were somewhere and we were both reading together. Yes. And now I know you're not a native New Yorker. No. You are from the South. Where in the South are you from? 
Um, I'm from outside of Washington, D.C. and Virginia, which is sort of like pseudo-South. I'm from Springfield, Virginia, which is near Alexandria, which is oh, okay. inside the Beltway. Inside the Beltway. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Did your parents work for the government? Um, my dad was in the Air Force and then moved into the defense industry and then kind of worked in the Pentagon and did different things. And we lived um, in Las Vegas when I was the age of seven and eight. And I have such weird, florid memories of that time because it's such a different place. And then we moved back to Virginia. So, oh, yeah, okay. I'm a little different than other Army brats. Because mm. hey, well, you, you're an Air Force brat. Yeah, you're an Air Force brat. Yeah, yeah. So your last name is Alboy. Are you of Italian descent? I am. Uh, Sicilian. Yeah. Um, are you first generation? Did your parents' families come here a long time uh, ago? My grandpa. My grandpa came over on a boat. He was five years old. He had. He was the last of his family to come over. The rest of the family had come over. He didn't even know or remember his father. And I, my dad just told me the story. And like came over with his aunt, I think. And uh, when he saw his father, my great grandfather, he was like, "You're not my dad." Like he was so like bamboozled and. Um, so anyway, he he uh, they, he barely made it over, and like, wow. and, and yeah, we come from a family of Sicilian miners, and there's all these old pictures that my dad unearthed. My dad is up in years now, and so he, now he's doing all that ancestry.com stuff. Well, so, of course, it's yeah. interesting. It is really you interesting. can fall down a wonderful rabbit hole with oh, that. Oh, beyond! I want to say that they they came over in like something like 1910. I'm not quite sure, but they they settled in Pittsburgh. Oh wow! So uh, they didn't stay in New York. No. Was your mom Italian also? No, she. Um, my grandparents on my mom's side were uh, British and Jewish. Um, my grandfather was uh, from Russian Jew descent, but they weren't really raised. They kind of denied their Jewishness. Mm. But it was common back then. Yeah, and but it's interesting because it comes out like uh, you. There's a whole. I think there's a strange neurotic, but also sensitive side that comes through the my my mom from my grandpa to my mom to me to my niece it's a it's a sensitivity and and i mean that in a good and a bad way like um it's a artistic sensitive sensitivity but it's also um an ocd quality oh uh, gotcha gotcha we we all worry a lot um uh i have to like go back and check my oven to make sure it's off you too times. no yes. dude oh my god oh my god <laughs> we've anyway. laid in the <laughs> yeah, right it's like that song, I'm down with OCD. Yeah, you know me. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> okay, so getting back to artistic sensibilities, um, was your family artistically inclined or creative at all? No. Um, no well, okay. Uh, there's some legendary people in my, in my extended family. Um, I have a great Aunt Lily who was a, a, a burlesque showgirl, a vaudeville showgirl, and uh, there's this wonderful picture of her in a big... Like, you know, outfit. Like a Minsky's like a, type of show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With like a big, wow. yeah. Uh, and she was um, she was a big talker and um, a, a force of energy and um, had great parties. And was Did you just, know her? Um, I don't think I ever met her, but she's just legendary in my family. Mm. Um, and she, she, I don't know, I feel, we all do, but my mom definitely does, but I, I as well have a, a big affinity for her. And my, and my great uncle... Michael uh, was a singer, but he was also uh, a bootlegger. He like sold during her prohibition. Well, you have some good provenance there, son. <laughs> oh my God, burlesque and bootlegging. What's coming up next? Yeah, I know, I'm the right? family tree. <laughs> um, and on my Italian side, my, um, my oh, grandpa. that's not the Italian that's not side. The Italian side. <laughs> that's like the the Jewish. Uh, that's the Jewish British side. Um, but my, my grandfather, my Italian side, was a lawyer for the mafia, the Italian mafia. For reals? Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, and, and my grandmother, Grandma Hetty, who is 
I think of Welsh descent. Um, she was a, a, a wonderful woman and really smart and really uh, a, a traveler. Both my parents are Republican, but in their own way, they've been very supportive of my creative life. So that's my great. Career, so. Did that manifest itself when you were very young? No, they kind of didn't know what to do with me when I was young. Well, I did, think. when did you know you were a weirdo? Um, I remember. I have a few different times. I, I, re I remember. I remember always wanting to write poetry, and um, I, I wrote poetry from How old? second grade. Second grade? I, yeah. You wrote poems when you were seven? That's yeah. so awesome. Yeah. Do you have other siblings? I do. I have old, two older brothers. Okay, so you're the baby. I'm the baby, yeah. And the baby was writing poems? The baby was writing poems. How did that go over? Uh, fine. Um, cool. I, I remember one, oh, good. My, I'm glad. My mom found one one time, and she was like, you, you should continue this. I just don't think they... Well, that's nice. Yeah, I don't think that they... Um, we're quite, I mean, I, I also was, you know, drawing a lot and dancing and doing all sorts of things. Um, and I always think about this, like, if I had grown up differently, if I had parents that, if it was a different time, if gayness was acceptable, if all for a bunch of different reasons, um, if I would have been a dancer instead of a writer, mm -hmm. because I, in a way, writing was easier to privatize than dance or acting or theater. Because um, it's dancing's more, for want of a better word, out. Out. And writing's more inward. In. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah, think yeah. I was. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Think in a way, I was subsuming my um, creativity into a form that I could hide. That is um, a really interesting yeah. analogy. Yeah. Wow. I love my parents. I'm, I'm, they're, I'm so lucky because they were nice people and they didn't abuse me. Um, but I think that they didn't really know. And I didn't know how to pursue an artistic career. Mm. Um, and I remember this, you know, they would be like, you should become an architect. You know, like, you should do something that makes money. And um, Of course. All, and, all, all immigrants think that. Right, right. And I didn't know there was such a thing as an art school or anything. You know what I mean? I didn't know at all where, where I should go or how Me I should. Me either. Yeah, I, didn't, I, I learned didn't, it all I, by myself. So how did your um, creative sensibilities play out during your um, formative years, like in school, were you the type of kid that was the drama school kid? Were you the uh -huh. type of kid that was like on the yearbook club? I'm mm -hmm. talking about like from grade school through high school. Yeah, um, I was in band. Uh, yeah, yeah. You musician band. too? Well, I learned how to play music. That's true. Everybody, everybody learned how to play in yeah. middle school, right? Yeah. Well, we used to call junior high school. Yeah, I, I yeah. played trombone from the age of, or from fifth grade till. 10th grade. Really? I played clarinet. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, I wanted to play clarinet, but it gave me the chills. Oh. The, the, the wet, vibrating wood makes me like, mm. it's like it's nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> That's the part I liked. <laughs> yeah, so trombones were, my brother Dave played trombone, and so I got his trombone, and I played it. And, you know, I'm very grateful, because I, I know how to keep a beat. I know how to... Can you how, still play it? I can still play it terribly. I'm a terrible trombone player. But if you practice, you'd be good at it. I could maybe pull it off. But I really believe that for kids it's really important to have a music education oh yeah because um, yeah. I some people I'm just like I can't believe they can't hold a beat like I'm like that is crazy yeah, you know bad. when I become first lady arts education is utmost important oh, yeah. I mean that that's the only way that we're going to keep get this yeah. country out of well we, we grew up in the time in. when they were cutting back left and right yeah. I remember when I was in high school half the teachers got fired and they like put in like people that were like three years older than me yeah I mean not really but you know what I mean yeah. it, felt, yeah. it felt like that yeah yeah so was high school good for you that you didn't get bullied or anything was, was you, uh, I didn't. You, I, I, I always talk about how I scratched and clawed my way up to popularity. Like, <laughs> I think at the. I like that. Yeah. I, I mean, think, I don't really like it, but I, I you yeah. know what I mean. Well, I, in a weird way, I was lucky because when I was in high school, being different was just about just starting to become cool. 
Mm. Um, yes. Molly Ringwald became a star yes. who I know now, who's a, who I'm friends with, and it's so weird to be friends with the, this icon that you, you know, saved your life when you were a kid. But um, uh, you know, she being funky was being was cool. Um, you know, new wave music. Yes. The Smiths, B52s, yes. all the all oh those bands God. were. New up. Order. Yeah. And Joy Division. Yeah. English Beat. <laughs> yeah, the English Specials. Beat, yes. Bad Manners. The Clash. Yes. The Peshmo. Totally. Like all those bands were. All of them. All of them. But so, so in, in high school, I was, I was in band, then I quit band, and I joined the literary magazine, and I became more of a writer and more of a. I started focusing on poetry more and um, expressing myself through poetry. And then in my senior year, I auditioned for the senior class play, and that was the first time I was ever on stage, and I got the lead. Of and course that, you did. That's, that's when I started understanding that I'm funny on stage, you know? And, um, and, and it was a really, really great experience. And then when I was in college, I didn't pursue theater at all. I, was, I think I was a little afraid. Um, but, you know, you know, my classmate, Tina Fey, was in the theater department. Um, Wait, you went to school with Tina Fey? Yeah, I didn't know her, but oh. we were the same age. And wow. We were, yeah. Wow. So have have you ever met her as, now as an adult? I haven't. I have not met her. I so, Tina Fey, if you're listening to this, your <laughs> classmates being yes. interviewed. <laughs> I so appreciate her. She's such a talent. Wow. But, um, yeah, kind of crazy. Uh, but I, I mostly was I, was, I was a poetry fag. I was like writing poetry, going, going to poetry workshops. It was all poetry all the time. Did your family know at this point? That I was gay? Yes. Um, they Or that you were an artist or that you were just... You. Did your family uh, know that you were you? They ha- I think later when I came out to my parents, they were like, we knew. And when I was in college is when also I started um, going to ACT UP and Queer Nation rallies in mm. the city. I would drive up to the city and, and attend ACT UP meetings with my young little 19-year-old self with all these older men dying of AIDS. But I was there, you know, that's what, that's what I did. And I was upfront about it. I was like, I'm going, to, I'm going to an ACT UP rally. You know, this is what I think. And, you know, you're 19 and you... Are rebellious, and that—that that was my way of of expressing myself. And that was also your way of claiming your own territory. Yeah. Where'd you go to college? University of Virginia in in Charlottesville, infamous now, Charlottesville, Virginia. But I, you weren't there. No, no. I, I graduated in 1991. Yeah. But I was very lucky to get into UVA. Now, why did you pick that school? Because it seems to me natural that you would have come straight to New York. Uh, yeah. Or went the, out to LA. Right. I'm in a way. I'm really glad I went to a small town because I think if I am, I think I would have lost myself in a city. I think I would have not had any kind of <laughs> discipline at all. You mm. know, to, and it was good to be contained. Um, but I was very lucky to go to UVA because it had an incredible writing school and um, an incredible poetry department. And I studied with one of the best poets in the world, um, Rita Dove, who has been the Poet Laureate a couple times. I don't know if you've ever heard, heard of her, but she's this fantastic, fantastic black woman who really was so honest about the, the poetry business and like getting your stuff out there. And um, So I learned a lot about poetry and, and literature while I was there and really focused on literature and being a weirdo. And it was also the best thing about being in Charlottesville was there were like 10 of us weirdos. There were 10 of us like gay and lesbian people, gay, lesbian, queer, trans people. And it was a very small gay and lesbian community in Charlottesville, but there was a student union and, you know, we kind of were a group and we were the weirdos. And it was kind of fun to be an artsy weirdo in a place of real heterosexual and really white. So what's the, what's the line of demarcation? I would say... I, things get real south real fast in Virginia, outside of D.C., when you hit um, Centerville, which is about 30 minutes, for, maybe maybe that's about 45 minutes outside of D.C., and I grew up in Springfield, which is about 20 minutes outside of oh, D.C. Oh, okay. So, but, so I'm in the suburbs. All right. You studied at UVA Poetry and... Yeah. Um, studio what, Art. And- I minored in Studio Art. 
And so I so grew a lot. You're a visual artist too. Yeah. Oh my god, you're just like multi-talented, Mike Albo. Yeah, that'll that'll get you a bagel. Did they have bagels down there? <laughs> they probably were awful if they had them. They were. You had a good time in college. I met some very important people in my life in college. Utmost, um, my friend Virginia Heffernan, who is. Uh, an incredible writer, and and now she's a she's sort of a burnishing herself to become a, a TV and radio host and speaker. She's one of the smartest people I've ever known, and she and I became super close. And did Tina Fey follow you to college? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah, too bad I didn't meet her back then. Oh well. Oh well, you weren't supposed to. That's all. Yeah, exactly. So, what did you think you were going to do with your life once you got out of college? What did you picture for your adult breakout? I was just talking about this recently. I feel like if I was young now, I'd be like, I'm going to get something on Netflix. But back then, there was no outlet. And no. there was no, it was impossible to think that your gay sensibility was going to ever make money or do anything um, artistically. In college, I was obsessed with the, the 80s performance artists uh, that were coming up into prominence, like um, Karen Finley and uh, Holly Hughes and John Fleck. And Demon de Galas and Lee John, Bowery. Uh, Lee Bowery. And Klaus Nomi. Klaus Nomi, like all these artists. And that to me was um, what I wanted to do because I was really fascinated by these people who were just getting on stage and being a version of themselves or just a, a being open. They were just like fury and pain and love and desire flying out of them. And it was, they were just fully themselves on stage. Well, that was like. I don't want to say the heyday of performance art because probably all times I hated yeah, performance art. Yeah, but yeah. In, in that time, in that decade, that was what attracted me also because yeah. my first foray was I became Karma Fungo. I mean, I did that performance art character for like a dozen years. Yeah. And yeah, if you, if you don't fit in anywhere else, yeah. it's an avenue that's open to an artist that doesn't fit into any other box. Yeah, yeah exactly. And and when I was in um, college, we were, we would have these poetry readings and... Poetry readings themselves can be very, yeah, they're like pretty sleepy events. It depends on which poets yeah, are reading. That's true, exactly. And um, No one sleeps in Bonnie Joy is reading. Oh, no, my God, no. Um, but I noticed while I was reading poetry that what I was really doing was performing between the poems. And I started kind of real, telling stories between these poems that I was write, reading and realizing the audience was much more engaged. And I was much more engaged when I was talking. So when you're breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. And uh, so... And this, are you still in college at this point? Yeah. That, that was, my, that was a, a realization that happened in college. And then I took that and sort of pursued that in, uh, when I moved to D.C. after college and started getting more and more comfortable being on stage in front of people and just doing these sort of rants and stories and stuff. So what were you doing to, to make a living at this point? Um, when I graduated from college, I... Well, first, I got an internship at the National Endowment for the Arts in the literature wow. program during the whole NEA4, um, the famous NEA4. Right, they went after Cameron yeah, Finley. Tim no. Miller, John Fleck, mm. and um, Holly Hughes. That, that was happening. The Maplethorpe thing was happening. Yes. And it was a very florid moment. I learned a lot about censorship. And I got very involved in art censorship. And then I got a job at the People for the American Way, which is Norman Lear's RIP, liberal lobbying group. And I worked in this section that focused on art censorship issues. I got really interested in, in freedom of expression, not only as an issue in the United States, but internationally. And if I was more of an organized person who didn't have my own expressive pursuits, I think I would have stayed in D.C. and become kind of like 
somebody, a lawyer who works for Human Rights Watch or something like that. But uh, I had, I needed to go to New York and become a freak. What was the tipping point for you that you knew that you had to come to New York? Um, well, my two friends had moved up here, and I remember my friend Lorraine Tobias, who's another good friend of mine who I'm so happy I met back, way back when. She, I was, I was like, maybe I'll move up, maybe I'll move up. I, I have like, you know, $1,500, and she's like, you know what? You'll never have enough money to live in New York, so you might as well just move here. So I moved up uh, and with no money, and I also got a job working at Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. Oh, VLA. Uh, VLA. Oh, yep. they are very, they're an awesome resource to many place. an artist that does not have the money and needs the resources. Yep, they're a great place. So I worked there uh, for a couple years, went to grad school for poetry, Columbia, and that's where I met Bonnie. Oh, it's yeah. all coming to me now. Yep, yep, yep. And, uh, you know, you can never say you regret something because there's always, like, a good side to it, but I am so in debt from that those two I was stupid years, and I'll never be able to pay this damn f- fucking student Well, you know off. what? Give them their payment, whatever it is. We don't need to know. Yeah. However much it is, you give them their payment every month. At one point, you will die, yep. and they will not get the rest of their money. Yep. Screw them. Screw them. That's what I have to say. Uh, uh, seriously. But while I was there, you know, I met Bonnie. I met um, some other incredible poets like uh, Brenda Shaughnessy and um, Timothy Donnelly. But while I was there, I was like... Ew, I don't like poetry. I mean, I love poetry, but I don't like the business of it. I don't like the fact that the, everyone's jockeying for this one two-inch square in the New Yorker, and that's mm-hmm. it, you know? And I, I was really there to break the form. I kind of should... I should have gone to art school. I should have gone to CalArts or something, because I was really wanting to blur form yeah. and uh, perform and SVA would have and... loved you. That's where I went. Ah, uh, yeah. So, um, you were working for BLA, BLA while yeah. you were at Columbia, yeah. and you realized that... Poetry ain't doing it for you. Yep. So what happens next? Um, while I was at Columbia, I started getting interested in other types of po- writing. And to me, I'm like, well, if I'm going to be a writer, I should be a writer of all things. Because if I'm going to make money doing this, i got to learn. So I begged and barged my way into other classes, like nonfiction writing classes, op-ed writing classes, playwriting classes. And took all and anything I could in other forms of writing. Uh, just so I felt more comfortable and confident. What a great foundation. Yeah, I mean, I had to force it to happen, but I did. And um, and from that, I wrote all these personal essays, which eventually became my first novel. And then years are kind of bleeding a little bit. But I, I think I, I was at Columbia from like 96 to, ni- 96 to 97, maybe. And then I wrote Hornito. And I was performing. Yes. So, so how did you manifest that switch? Yeah. Um, well, there's a big watershed. So Virginia, my good friend and I, she and I would write a lot of stuff together. And I was writing these um, sort of vignettes. I was writing like little stories, um, little two-minute rants. Um, and I was doing them around town because that was sort of the time of a lot of coffee places that needed, you know, lots of entertainment, open mm-hmm. mic kind of things. And it was also the heyday of the alt Comedy yep. performance scene exactly. on the Lower East Side in East <laughs> Village of New York City. Totally. Yes, I'm going to say that I saw you at Fez in probably 98. Yeah, I think I started performing at Fez in 98 or 99. So, you know, there's always a place to put something up. And um, and so I, I, I was doing all these different um, stories and stuff. And then that also, the moth was just starting. I became kind of like a host for the moth. When? 
Really early on. I think I was I was one of their first hosts. Really? Yeah. Because I started doing the moth in 2003, four. Uh-huh. I might have been... Oh, I don't remember ...tossed you. aside by then. You were tossed yeah. aside. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but there's this one moment, there's this one thing that I wrote with Virginia um, that I remember performing it, and I remember being like, oh, this was, a, this was it. This was like the moment that... Um, and it's this thing called service, and it's this sort of litany of service industry phrases and terms and... Um, and it's it's just it's about five minutes long, and I did it all over town, and that became kind of like my uh, my calling card. Your signature piece. Yeah, and then from there I got other gigs, and and I remember performing once at the National Arts Club, and um, at, you know another group show, and this woman coming up to me and being like, "Hey, I'm an, a literary agent. Have you ever thought about writing a book?" And I was like, "Oh, no, but now I do," <laughs> and so um, I worked on. This novel. And that became Hornito. And that became Hornito, and then I gave it to her, and we shopped it around and found a publisher. Um, and I was lucky because the publishing industry is just as craven as any other industry. And at the time, David Sedaris was huge. Yes. So I mean, he's still late nineties, yeah. But no, late nineties, yeah. he was he was it boy. He was it boy. He was it boy. And so, you know, and and it's interesting. Like I've seen um, a lot of my female friends got their humorous essay collections published because um, of Sarah Silverman. Right, because somebody breaks out and then yeah. everybody else wants the next one because yeah. they want to glom on to exactly. that success. Which they, has a, a plus and a minus. The right. minus being that you'll never be... Right. Like, you yeah. don't want to be and you never no. will be. You don't want to be the next David Sedaris. You no. want to be Mike Elbow. Yeah, ex- right, <laughs> exactly. You want, you want to be you. Yeah. So where's Tina Fey now? I know, right? Exactly. I'm going to have to Google it and find out where she where she was in 1998 and 9. Oh, funny. Yeah, that'd be funny to find out. I'm going to Google it. I'm I think she you. lived in Chicago. I think she, I think she became second a... Second City? I was think she, she became a Second City person. Pretty sure. That was her route. I find it really interesting that um, one of you, the first performance pieces that became your signature piece was just like these service phrases. Yeah. Because that became, I mean, that type of performance became like the foundation of the performance art group that I probably saw an mm-hmm. early incarnation of at Fez yeah. that was called Unitard. Yes. We're still around too. Yes. With Nora Burns and David, David Ilku. Ilku. Yeah. That blew my friggin' mind. Oh, thanks. That, it, it totally blew my mind. Oh, thank and you. I, and, I, and I think that it probably taught me the meaning of snark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the value of it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I have to say that watching you guys gave me a perspective that I probably morphed in my own mm-hmm. way cool. for my own career trajectory going forward. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about Unitard and yeah. how did it come about? Because it, it came about at about that time. Yeah. I think at the time, in 98, I was fact-checking. I was a fact-checker for Paper Magazine. Paper Magazine? Yeah. Oh, my God. I know, and I love those guys. I was they're very... still around, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they are. And they're, they're great people, and I learned a lot from them, too, um, about fact-checking, actually. <laughs> um, it's important. Yeah. Too. It's an yeah, important it's, skill. It is a very important skill. Um, but uh, I... So Nora was writing for um, Paper, and she came to see me perform at Here Theater. I did So finally, after doing all these different nights, I put together all my little bits into a, a full-length show, and I did that. What was it called? Um, the first one was just called Mike Albo, Mike Albo, like a first album. I, I've done about eight solo shows at this point, but um, the first three or four of my solo pieces were these little collections of vignettes. And um, I was uh, doing it uh, at Here Theater, and then she was like, hey, the, you know, I love your stuff. Let's let's do something together. And then we did something together, and then we roped in David, and we all did a show together. And, we, and then we just sort of t- started developing stuff together. And 
I think over the years, our, our sensibilities are the same. They're both, they're slightly older than me. So they saw like New York, they saw a lot of their friends die. You know, they're a really interesting group of them. And uh, I think of Lady Bunny and and a bunch of artists too are, are very similar. There's this group of gay and lesbian trans people that were the survivors of AIDS. Mm. But I think also because they're the youngest of the, of the generation and they, they were like the cool kids with the cooler people and all the cooler people died and then they were the only ones left. <laughs> and uh, so they have a really interesting perspective and, um, and a very angry, they're very angry and uh, very forthright and political. And I, I've always been hugely fascinated and kind of in love and in hate with um, our consumer culture. And I find a lot of inspiration and also repulsion in um, consumer language. And uh, I just, the way that we use words, the way that everything is a portmanteau of like, you know, and things are like slickery, it's slippery and slick together, slickery, you know, like the way that our consumer language is constantly trying to seduce us uh, with these weird squishy words all the time. And I, I just... I just obsessed with, with that kind of language. So, uh, so everything became kind of like a comment on consumerism, but also a comment on hypocrisy and Republican bullshit. <laughs> and this is actually at the point where you started writing a column for the New York Times. That came a little bit later. I was in like uh, the early two thousands. That column uh, was the seven. best worst job you ever had that oh, turned man. into something better. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, that column was amazing. It was an amazing experience, and that was uh, two thousand seven and eight and nine. So you were you were doing performance, yeah. and being Mike Albo yep. from the time when I first saw you in the late nineties. Till and you had your book Juanito till yeah. like through for the next ten years basically that's what you were. Well, you know, I was working. I was uh, I had the job at Paper, and then um, and then I got a job as a uh, fashion writer for a Condé Nast magazine. Which yeah. one? It's not around anymore. It's called. It was called Cargo. It was like the it was like the male lucky. It I remember about, it. And I learned a lot about writing from that experience. And, you know, but at the same time, I was performing downtown and, and doing shows. And then I wrote my second book, The Underminer. The Underminer is that best friend who makes you feel really awful about yourself. And that book came out of performance. That was based on a character that I performed and created with Virginia. And, um, and then that book was, um, had an interesting adventure in the Hollywood world. It was optioned for film. Um, and then that fell through. And then it went... And then... HBO kind of flirted with it for a little bit, and I developed it as a TV show with them for no money, and then that fell through in 2008, and um, and then I decided to write my own script uh, anyway, and so I learned how to write a script, like I've done everything, and I, I learned it on by doing, you know. I learned doing a radio show by doing it. Hello, I mean you gotta, you know, you can prepare all you want to, but you gotta get still get yeah, on stage, you, you know. Yeah. But, and then and then I got the, the the Times column. That New York Times column, that is. The true North Star for so many people who are writers. Yeah. To have a, a, any kind of byline. Yeah. Like, even to have a small piece accepted to the opinion column yeah, yeah. one time. I know. But did you think at the time when this happened that you had made it? Like, how did that come about and how did you feel about that? Um, you know, it ended horribly. It ended in this... like We don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. Oh, no, I totally want to talk about it. Okay. I love talking about it. Um, right. But I remember when I got it, I was. I did think. I was like, okay, this is going to go someplace. Like, you know. What was the name of the column again? I don't remember. Uh, the critical shopper. Me and Sintra were the. Me and Sintra were the. Sintra Wilson. Yeah, I got her the job writing it too. So, so it was me and her. We would trade off weeks, and um, we burned that fucking thing to the ground. <laughs> we, like, I can't believe what we got away with. What we got to say. So, 
The critical for people that don't know what that was, the critical shopper was a column in the New York Times that ran regularly. That that I would go in. It was essentially a retail review. I would go into a store and write about the store, and I was able to. And this was in two thousand seven, eight, and nine. So it was like at the pinnacle of the Gilded Age. Um, of the new Gilded Age, when you would walk into a store and there'd be like a fifteen thousand dollar beanbag chair. Now those fucking beanbag chairs are everywhere. Everything's gilded. But it was it was the it was the transformative time when New York was pre-smartphone, pre-Twitter. Yeah, it was just at that cusp yep. of the social mishmash we yeah. have today. Yeah, exactly. And the beginning of uh, the quote-unquote death of print. That's when right. when all the newspapers were beginning to feel the burn and the pain. And of, the brick-and-mortar stores were also yeah. starting to feel it because yeah. online shopping was starting to become a thing exactly. and apps were just starting to be born. Right. And there were all these mean blogs out there like Gawker and um, and others that, um, that were uh, kind of poking fun at the, at the Manhattan media power elite. And so they were afraid of Gawker. There was just a lot of... It was a very weird, dynamic time. But I, in the column, I got to talk about, like, who the fuck is infor- affording all this shit, you know? Um, you know, these $300 shirts. Like, I can't afford... I couldn't afford... I was making... that For that column, I was making $800 each column. So I was making $1,600 a month, which covered my rent and, you know, some a little bit of food. And then I would get gigs uh, elsewhere doing other columns. But I, I just, I'm trying to express, it wasn't like I was rolling in cash. Right, know? right, right. Um, you you were still, like, barely squeaking by. Yeah. I'm a struggling writer and artist. So um, writing about fucking expensive Ralph Lauren, you know, Rick Owens cape stuff. <laughs> and um, But at the same time, quality is quality. And I, and I would see some beautiful things that were way worth the money. And... I would walk into the Maison Margiela store and be like, this is the most beautiful clothes I've ever seen. If I was an action star, I would totally wear these clothes for the rest of my life. Um, but, you know, at other times I'd be like, this is pure Emperor's New Clothes bullshit, you know? Mm. But, it, it, but it also was, a, it was really fun to write. It was, it, I got to be as funny as I wanted to be. My editor, Anita LeClure, in this section was probably one of the best editors I've ever worked with. And I learned a lot there. You know, I learned how to zip things up and write as, as well as I could, because when you're writing for the Times, you you need you to write. Yeah, yeah, you got to write. Yeah, yeah. And then it wasn't fun anymore. What happened with that? Um, well, in a nutshell, yeah, encapsulated version. I was a I was a freelancer for them. I didn't have any contract. Didn't have any office space. I was just me. And I was invited on a trip, to uh, a promotional trip. And so I asked my friend if I should go, and you know, because I knew that you know, there are certain uh, conflicts of interest when you're writing for the Times. And my friend was like, yeah, just go. Just say you're not going representing the Times. And so I told the promoters on this trip, I'm going as myself. I'm not representing the Times in any way. Went on the trip. The trip was very ill-fated. It was to this Jamaican resort. And there was this horrible rainstorm. And this all this electric equipment fell on the crowd and injured all these people. I got back from the trip. And um, at the time, the Internet was after the Times. And the Times was freaking out. And this guy, this sort of muckraker guy, discovered that I went on this thing and said, like, you know, you know, New York Times writer goes on a trip. So he ratted on you? He ratted on me. Who is he? His name's Jeff Berkovici. We hate you. <laughs> he, he's Karma funny. has your address. Yeah. <laughs> so he wrote this thing. And then it got into Gawker. And then I became a, a, a sort of martyr of the freelance writer because um, the, the hypocrisy of it was kind of crazy. It, so I ended up in, in flames. It just, it, my career went south. And, and at the same time, that's, this is when the digital, digitalization of 
information had begun. So where I was paid for a dollar a word before, I was now paid a quarter a word. It changed. Making, like yeah, the whole the changed, whole world yeah. crashed and burned with it. Yeah. But however, that setback became a setup for one of your greatest soul shows. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing it at Dixon Place. Oh, yeah, The Junket. Yes, The yes. Junket. And that solo show went off-Broadway, and that was a fantastic experience um, because after starting to get on stage when I was 25, I did that show in 2014, so that's like however many years later, 20 years later. And um, finally, I felt like I could act. That show made me an actor. It was a, it was a fantastic experience, that show. I don't understand. I understand yeah. totally. You, you felt like you came into your own. Yeah. So yeah. perhaps this is a really good time to say a little pescado. I say a little fish because I don't say a little birdie because this is the fish out of Agua show. Yeah. <laughs> a little pescado says that oh, you have a little story to share from us, whether it's from that or something else. Oh, sure. Well, it's I'll just... Tell you this conversationally, um, I do have a story. Okay, um, is, is it like a story with a name, or is this just a, a it's thing? It's just a thing. I, I feel like okay. I, I feel like it's very appropriate for this show. Right. Mike Albo's thing. Uh, right. <laughs> well, I like that. It's a good title. Mike, <laughs> Mike Albo's thing. thing. <laughs> Tina Fey, are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna get Tina to listen to this. Oh somehow. my God! Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I fell in love with a Uruguayan anesthesiologist in Acapulco. Now, I know that sounds like um, an acting elocution exercise, but it actually happened. Um, in 1999, I was with all these friends in Acapulco, and we were all on drugs. Everyone's like, fucked out of their brains. I wasn't doing that many drugs as, as everyone else. All my friends became drug addicts after, I, after we got back. And I was on the beach, and it was really polluted, and I was really depressed. And I was looking at this pool of diseased dolphins stuck in this like water, like these sad dolphins. And this man came up to me, and... And I turned to him, and he was this gorgeous man. And I was like, in my bad Spanish, was like, el mundo es feo, you know. And he was like, <laughs> and he was, and then we be, we began this mad affair in Acapulco. And then we, and then, this is before cell phones, this is 1999. Then we ended up in, um, somehow, we met up again two weeks later in Mexico City. I don't know how we did it. What did, what did we do? Call each other on the phone? Send carrier pigeons? I have no idea how it happened. But somehow, I ended up with him in Mexico City. And then he went, went back to Uruguay, and I went back to New York. And then I kept in touch with him for four years. I thought about him constantly, and he was this gorgeous man. And, oh, my God, he was going to be, like, this answer. He's, he was, like, the door to a different life that I had for myself. He was, like, my under-the-Tuscan sun, you know, shit, life shift. And then I saved up money, saved up money. In 2003, I finally saved up enough money to go down there and visit him. And it was July, so it was cold down there. And he was cold down there. And he, but we somehow, I stayed there for a week. We went to Buenos Aires. He, um, he was just sort of bitchy and uh, mean, but also sexy. And we had fights and then would have sex. And then he would go back to this hotel room. And that's when I started listening to um, Julieta Venegas, which is one of the songs that I put on there. Um, and then I came back home and I thought, okay, well, it's over. And, you know, that was that. And then in 2014, when I was performing The Junket, he came back, he came to visit in New York and he came to see the show and then everything was rekindled. And somehow he came back to my apartment and somehow I went to the bathroom and came out and there were candles everywhere and there was music playing and I, it just all became a blur again. And then again, I saved up all this money to go down there and because I was like, I got to follow this through. This is like, 
you know, this is this, one of those romantic stories that you always tell yourself is going to happen. So you got to you got to see what's going to happen. So then I went down, and uh, it went down to Montevideo where he lived, and um, Montevideo is not not the best city. It's kind of like the Boston of South America. It's just sort of like, eh, the water is all brown and dirty, and there aren't a lot of like sexy murals anywhere. And there's this one shitty gay bar. So. Uh, and then I, I remember one time I was over at his place and he was like, I, after coaxing me to come down there and everything, he kind of shifted and he, he was like, I don't have any feelings for you or anyone. And then I was like, okay, then I'm going to go. And then he like, I remember he came and walked me downstairs shirtless. I was like, why are you, why are you trying to be all sexy when you're saying goodbye to me? It's so annoying. So anyway, I guess the moral of the story is, uh, you got to follow when you, when you, something like this happens, you have to follow it through. But also if there's one thing that's good about our horrible internet age where you just get together with people on the phone, it's easier to get over those than it is like some florid story from the past where you meet someone in Acapulco who's a Uruguayan anesthesiologist. If you make them online, that's just like, okay, yeah, next. And it's easier to get over, but this one took a while. So be happy that you're meeting people on, on the internet is all I have to say. Tinder ain't so bad. Tinder ain't so bad. And Montevideo is the Boston of South America. <laughs> <laughs> so what is Mike Apple up to these days? Um, well, uh, we're doing Unitard. Um, You've uh, been doing Unitard for like over 20 years. Yeah. And we, we started doing it at Joe's Pub um, two years ago. We have sort of this long-running residency of sorts. And we get back there in March. We're going to be doing it in L.A. at... Casita del Campo in the Cavern Club Theater in February, February 23rd and 24th, I think. And then we come back to um, Joe's Pub in March. And we oh, do that's it in great. March, April, May. Be on the lookout for those people. This show yeah. is fantastic. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. It's fun. Um, and, then, and then I'm also doing my, um, my solo show. Uh, oh, you have a new solo show. Yeah, I have a new solo show about being a donor to... Oh, lesbians. sperm donor. Yeah, yes. Yeah. What's it called? Spermhood. And that's going to be coming out in the spring also? Uh, I'm do, I'm, I'm, my goal was to do it more often because um, it still resonates. So I'm doing it up in Provincetown, I think, in June. Uh, and then I'm trying to find some other places. So Mike go. Alba was busy. He's a little busy. And you're still doing, you're still writing for different publications? I am. I um, Also, I need to say these, this out loud because it makes you feel better. That's the other thing, uh, youngs who are listening uh, know that you got to say things out loud because then you feel like you're, they're true. But I wrote a novel, another novel, um, that I'm trying to get published. Excellent. But it's it's not easy getting an agent these days. Tina, find your classmate. <laughs> ah, you never know. You never know. You never know. She <laughs> might look at the yearbook and say, "Oh my oh, God, I remember yeah. him. He was such a nice boy." <laughs> So if somebody wants to find you and learn more about you and the fantabulous things that you do, yeah. where do they go on the interwebs? Uh, well, I'm on Facebook, a.k.a. Russian Troll Farm, uh, at Mike Albo, uh, on Instagram at Albo Mike, on Twitter at Albo Mike, and I have a website that's I'm launching again. That's MikeAlbo.net. By MikeAlbo.net. That's a Freudian <laughs> yeah, no, right. slip. <laughs> I know. Uh, I think I, I think I'm .net .org and one other one. Um, I can't remember offhand, but you have all of them. Yeah, you have all the Mike albums. <laughs> yeah, so so I'm out there. Yeah, look for him. Like him on Facebook. Follow him on IG and Twitter because you can. Yay! I'll follow you back. 
Yes, yes, he's, he's a follow-back guy. I am. He is, he is. And so, Mike, I ask this question of everyone when we come to the end of our time together. If you had any word of advice or encouragement for a young, yeah. or even someone who's a little older, yeah. who knows that they march to a different beat and wants their life to be more than the constraints of either their upbringing or their circumstances have them in, what would you tell this person? Oh, man. Um, uh, stay weird. Don't ever not be weird. And um, find your group of friends that support you and make you laugh and that you make them laugh and know that that matters. And share your stuff all the time. Don't, don't stop sending stuff out. Get on stage. Get your stuff out there. And also, I think one thing that's kept me sane is that if you see other people, you know, become rock stars or become famous, that's them. They're not you. You're a d totally different person. You have a, you have your own thing to say, and you are you are just as valid as they are. But you are don't compare yourself. Yeah, that's so important. Run yeah. your own race. Yeah, that is so important because you you can like ruin your life by comparing yourself to other yeah, people. Yeah, Jerry Saltz, the art critic, says, "Make an enemy of envy," <gasps> which I think is really important. Wise words. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on Fish Out of Agua, Mike Alba. Thank you, thank you. Hug on the air. Hug, hug, hug. We always end with a hug <laughs> on the nice. air.
And we are back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. You just heard Nada Fue Un Error, which means nothing was an error, which is pretty apt for Mike Albo's interview, don't you think? That song is by Coti, Argentinian pop star, along with Julieta Venegas, who Mike Albo mentioned, and Paulina Rubio. It's from their album called Esta Mañana y Otros Cosas, Tomorrow and Other Things, which came out in 2005. Pretty cool song. Nothing was an error. That's a really good message. Well, kids, that's our show. You have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. I do have two quick announcements. Uh, Starting on January the 28th, our Teen Squad starts, where Radio Free Brooklyn teaches teens to take the mic and create their own shows. And we have a new show called Martini Con Queso starting on Sunday, January 27th. Lounge music for Wind Down Sunday with Cheese. For more information on both, just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. We're going to close with the last of Mike Albo's song picks. This is the exact song that Mike was referencing in his story. It's also by Julieta Venegas. It's called Me Voy, which means I'm leaving, from her Limon y Sal, Lemon and Salt album in 2006. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week. Woohoo! Que no merezco esto porque 